Tomorrow Unlocked brings you Fast Forward, presented by Ken Hollings. Program 3. Nowhere to go but here. There is a future that we think we know already. One that seems as safe as yesterday. It lies somewhere between what we know and what we can imagine. Between the limits of today and the possibilities of tomorrow. But this future has a hidden dimension, a mysterious secret area that we like to call the past. We live in two cities today, or rather, one city that has been constructed in two specific ways, the physical and the digital. They are both what architects and engineers would call built environments, and they often coexist in the same space and the same time. Somewhere between these two infrastructures, the physical and the digital, there exists the city of the future. One cradled within a network of fiber-optic cables, Wi-Fi nodes, smartphone apps, rapid transport systems, and online services. The city of the future is built around mobility, speed, and flexibility. It's a data-rich environment capable of responding to your every need and wish. The city of the future has been around for a long time. Paris, Berlin, London, New York, Los Angeles, Tokyo, Seoul and Beijing have all at one time or another been refashioned as the global center for commerce, culture, data and trading. If you were in any sort of business, you had to be connected to them in one way or another. What hath God wrought may have been Samuel Morse's first coded communication to be sent by wire from Washington DC to Baltimore in 1844, but it was followed by the anticlimactic inquiry. Have you any news? This request was repeated in 1858 over the first transatlantic cable linking America with Great Britain. Pray give us some news from New York. They are mad for news. The global pandemic has stretched those lines of communication further than ever before. Staying connected in a remote world became increasingly crucial as a significant part of the professional population took to working from their homes. Less commuting meant less pressure upon urban transit systems. Roads emptied. The centers of cities were all but deserted. Shops and offices, bars and restaurants closed. Video conferencing, e-commerce and email traffic rose so sharply and by so much that working from home quickly became routine. Suddenly, there was nowhere to go but here. The networked computer had become the new city of the future. But what are the implications for our cities and how we use them after COVID-19? What's changed and will it still be the same after COVID? Shoshana Sachs, professor in civil and mineral engineering at the University of Toronto and a Canada research chair, has some challenging thoughts on the subject. I think there's an important temporal aspect that mostly gets missed in the discussion of after COVID. People talk about what's going to happen after COVID. Will things always be different? And it often sounds like 
people are using the world always to represent the next year or the next two years or even the next five years. And five years is still way too short a planning horizon for cities. We need to be thinking, I think, minimum 10 years, ideally 20, 30, 40 years ahead, because that's how long it takes to build out a place to invest in it. For the last couple generations in high-income countries, technology has done some pretty amazing things. The car fundamentally changed how we live, I think in many ways for the worse, but also for the better in some ways. The refrigerator was a revolution. The smartphone has changed our day-to-day in a lot. And so it's hopeful and appealing to imagine that technology could do that in other ways as well. Unfortunately, in my opinion, it just doesn't work. You can't found a city on the internet. You can't found a city on tech. You have to have good, solid infrastructure that lasts a long time. Physically, a handful of our cities were planned from the start, like Washington's famed wheel and spoke design and the gridiron pattern, a popular 19th century city plan. But due to the incredibly rapid expansion, most cities outdistanced their planners when there were any and grew into a maze of complexity and confusion. So we talk about vertical infrastructure, buildings that go up and down, and horizontal infrastructure, roads and transport systems that go side to side, electricity networks, water networks. But we also use the word infrastructure colloquially to mean many other things, like our social infrastructure or our digital infrastructure. And whereas I think that information technology is going to be really important to our social infrastructure, I think making digital technology important for our physical infrastructure, our hard stuff that underlays the world, is not a very good idea. The city of the future for a large part already exists, right? We live in it. Most of the city that's gonna exist 10 years from now, 20 years from now, for most of us has already been built. In our world, the speed and tempo of modern living are increasing at an ever accelerating rate. Without organization, without system, the result would be chaos. Our control over a bewildering environment has been facilitated by new techniques of handling vast amounts of data at incredible speeds. The tool which has made this possible is the high-speed digital computer operating with electronic precision on great quantities of information. Information needs to be free because in order to be fully effective, it must also be mobile. Our digital infrastructure consequently changes and adapts itself to the circumstances with a rapidity that the hard infrastructure of buildings and roads simply cannot do. Hence, the city streets and offices standing empty during the COVID-19 pandemic. The home could quickly be converted into a functioning workspace simply because it was an environment already very rich in information, streamed over a wide range of apps and devices. But if we are to continue working from home in the future, what should we be doing about keeping our data safe and secure? Time to link up with The Safety Zone. The Safety Zone with David M. Principal Security Researcher at Kaspersky. Those of us lucky enough to be able to work from home have been forced to do so over the last year. And that's had a huge impact really in terms of security because businesses obviously typically will operate with a secure moat around them. 
We don't have that anymore. And importantly, you know, when lockdown first happened, there was this huge scramble to make sure that staff had devices that they needed, the other equipment that they needed. And obviously, business continuity was uppermost in people's minds rather than security. We did some research and we got some interesting data from that. About 50% of companies didn't have policies for regulating the devices people were using from home. We know that attackers are continually trying to reshape what they're doing and they're using topical incidents and topical events as a hook, such as information from the World Health Organization about COVID-19 or furlough information or tax information related to the epidemic. That's why I think it's important that for companies looking at this, security needs to be a cultural thing rather than a training exercise where you say, well, actually, here are the latest tricks that the criminals are using. And sometimes it is the simple things that will fix this. I mean, for example, not giving people admin rights to their laptop or their desktop, because generally speaking, they don't need it. And it's a bad idea because if you get infected with a piece of malware, it inherits the same rights that you have. If you can't see some data because you don't have the rights to access it, nor can any malware. If you can't get to a particular resource, nor can the malware. So you can limit the scope of what an attacker can do based around only giving people the necessary permissions and rights that they need on a particular system. Fast Forward is brought to you by Tomorrow Unlocked, the cyber culture channel from Kaspersky. Fast Forward. Learning from the future so you don't have to. In February 1947, on what had once been an expanse of potato fields between New York City and Long Island, the first Levitt town was opened to the public. A planned community of 6,000 households offering affordable housing in the form of detached single-family units, this new conurbation quickly expanded to embrace a further 11,000 homes, each situated 60 feet apart on its own patch of ground. Well-ordered, Isolated, but linked up to all the latest amenities and services, Levittown was one of the first major suburban housing projects in the West. It also played a major role in the widespread introduction of electronic communication systems over the coming decades. The suburbs very quickly became an essential part of a growing media landscape. Hooked up to the outside world via radios and TV sets, record players and tape recorders, plus a thriving newsprint community, the suburbs were saturated with data throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s, changing lifestyles, behaviour and opinions. Then came the home computer, and the suburbs started changing again. Rather than a city of the future, COVID-19 has established a new kind of digital suburb. People concentrated in their individual homes rather than the central hubs of cities, relying upon a widespread network of apps, platforms and digital devices to stay in contact with each other. It's tempting to think that today's digital networks have an architecture that is as easily accessible as that of the first Levitt town back in 1947, and therefore somehow neutral as well. But are these new digital suburbs open to all of us? Does everyone experience them in the same way? There are valuable lessons about the architecture of the future, both physical and digital, to be learned from the current pandemic. 
Sarah Akibogan is an architect and filmmaker. She's vice chair of Women in Architecture and a member of the Council of the Royal Institute of British Architects in London. There is a notion that architecture is neutral and maybe on the surface it might appear to be, but if you delve into the history of the profession, architecture as a discipline is very much linked to the idea of the white male body and the proportions of the white male body. The voices of people of colour are very much missing from the conversation around how we make our cities. Now, that's something that I have been aware of because of my own career. My own experience in the profession bears out the fact that there is a lack of representation. The truly dynamic American cities are those that are coming to grips with the problem of outmoded structures. Getting needed space in our cities for modern structures is the only way to meet the competitive force of growing suburban strength. The idea of the suburb, it's a, an image that operates at several levels. So you have this idea of, you know, the, this kind of utopian vision, this place where we'll all retire when we have enough money. The suburbs were created as a beacon of the American dream. But the problem with them was that they were overwhelmingly white. And that's due to racism and segregation that was embedded in American law, but also because people of color couldn't access mortgages. And that's still something that is relevant today in terms of who has access to what sort of housing. The commuter city is focused around the life and journey of the middle-class white man. But if you are a mother having to drop children off to school and hold down a job, then your experience of the city is very different. At the moment, we talk about the digital divide. The pandemic has brought the fact that not everybody has the same access to technology very much to the fore. And it soon becomes very apparent that there's a huge disparity in people's access to technology. So this idea of ubiquity and the notion that technology will be equally accessible to all people in this city is potentially a, a fallacy. Yes, this is it, my hometown. The place we as members of this community call home and from time to time leave it for elsewhere. There will be a response to the fact that things like the center of cities are emptying out. In the long term, I hope that it will be an opportunity to rethink our domestic space and also to rethink community networks because we realise how important they are. This enforced isolation has cut us off from those networks but conversely it has allowed some who have access to the technology to create new networks, networks that are more widely spread geographically and I hope that we will take some of the things that we've learned into how we think about design in future. We're hoping that some of the flexibilities around working from home will become embedded in future culture. There are a lot of young collectives forming, coming through at the moment, and I think that there's a lot of fresh thinking. And if those people stay within the profession, if we create the 
right environment to keep them within the profession, then I think that this generation will hugely affect the way we think about architecture in the future. It's a generation that are plugged into technology and digital networks and actually using those networks to challenge traditional hierarchies. The pandemic's accelerated it because we are all online. The fact that you and I are having this conversation is actually evidence of that because we've never met. <laughs> In 1951, a second Levitt town opened in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, containing 17,000 homes, complete with its own paved streets, electric lighting, off-street water, sewage system, telephone, and power lines. Two years ago, this was farmland and forest. Levitt town, now one of the 10 largest cities in Pennsylvania. For workers anywhere else in the world, this would be a miracle in itself. It helped create a community that was ready to consume and experiment with new media and new technologies. A mid-50s craze for high-fidelity stereophonic sound turned living rooms into concert halls for the first time. A second telephone in the home allowed people, especially teenagers, to start communicating more freely with each other. The introduction of television not only altered the general layout of the living room by becoming the centre of everyone's attention, but also changed their daily timetable. More importantly, these two simple devices created new patterns of behaviour, turning people into bigger consumers of goods and services than ever before. As cities started to expand during the second half of the 20th century, they slowly absorbed the early suburbs. Their influence, however, can still be felt in the design of today's home, and particularly in the way it has adapted itself to digital technology. This has made it possible to create new communities of people working from their living spaces, establishing new social and cultural networks. The physical city of the future is still with us. Its infrastructure has been in place for some time now and is being added to all the time. It's beneath our feet, embedded in our streets and walls. Construction work in major cities around the world has continued despite the pandemic. But then there is that other city of the future, the digital one, made up of networked apps and devices. This has also continued to grow as it has responded to the needs of a population that has suddenly found the familiar rhythm of its daily existence severely disrupted. COVID-19 has made a measurable impact here. The rise of Zoom and online media streaming, plus an unprecedented boom in home deliveries of everything from food to entertainment are all evidence of this. How we each experience our cities after COVID-19, how we interact with them both physically and digitally, is something that will continue to evolve. Clearly, new technologies will play a major role in affecting that change. In the meantime, COVID has given us the opportunity to stop, reconnect with our world, and think about the kind of cities we want to inhabit in the future. It may no longer be a matter of nowhere to go but here, but rather everywhere to go from here. Oh, excuse me. Uh, I have to get that. I'm expecting a package. Sorry about this. Hello? Hello? Just leave it on the step. You have been listening to Fast Forward. Production and sound design were by Simon James. Music by Simon James and Max de Wardener. Production coordination was by Curtis James. You also heard the voices of my special guests, Shoshana Sachs, Sarah Akibogan, and David M. Historical Voices, courtesy of the Prelinger Archive. 
My name is Ken Hollings, and I have been your presenter. This has been a Sounds Fancy production. Further episodes of Fast Forward are available on all podcast channels. Fast Forward is brought to you by Tomorrow Unlocked. For more information about this series and other thought-provoking stories of how technology is helping us to create a better future, visit TomorrowUnlocked.com by Kaspersky. Cybersecurity to help bring on the future. Hello everybody, it's Jeff here from Kaspersky. Hope you enjoyed listening to Fast Forward. If you like audio series about technology, you'll love our podcast, the Kaspersky Transatlantic Cable Podcast. If interested, search for Kaspersky Podcast or Transatlantic Cable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.